So for those of you who have not met yet, my name is Ali. Uh, it's really good to see you here, and we are continuing in our uh, series on 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've arrived at chapter 4, uh, which can be found on page 1146 of these house Bibles. And uh, my good friend, Greg McIntosh, is going to be our Bible monitor for tonight. So if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up. Greg will deliver them. And uh, obviously, if you don't have a Bible at home, then you can take that home as our gift to you. Um, but I don't want to see them on eBay tonight. That's not allowed. You've got to keep them. Um, so just as Greg's doing that, and as you're finding um, that passage, 1 Corinthians 4, in your Bible, I just want to uh, talk about a situation. We're talking about back to basics tonight, and almost like back to school. Um, and I was just thinking of a situation. Have you ever been in that situation where um, you've been in a classroom at school, uh, everything's been going fine, and then the teacher goes out the room, and then suddenly uh, things become a little bit chaotic. Uh, people start to misbehave. All, all control, all, all authority goes out the window and anarchy reigns. Um, I remember specifically uh, my third year biology class in school. Uh, we had a teacher who was nearing the end of retirement. Um, so to be honest, he was a little bit lax. He wasn't too bothered about uh, class. He, he kind of trusted us that we would get the work done. Um, and also, it was after the, just the break time. So he was in the staff lounge. And about, he was always 15 minutes late to our class. Uh, so we kind of maybe took a little bit of advantage of this. Uh, so me and my friends, uh, Lyle and Rory, um, we um, worked this out. And we'd start slowly. We'd maybe, for a couple of weeks, we'd whisper to each other a bit of conversation um, just because uh, in case the teacher came back. But then we realized that these 15 minutes were like hours to us and uh, actually we could do whatever we wanted so we chatted loudly we chatted to people across the room I remember Lyle brought in his cards one time so we played cards it was great we got our Game Boys out because we were those 90s kids um, you know and just and just we were generally misbehaving not doing our work and then one one week about five minutes into this tomfoolery uh, the head of department comes in and realizes that we're not doing our work and he is raging he is furious and we realize that the game is up, that we need to get back to work and back to those basics of biology that we've been learning. And uh, Paul here finds himself in a similar situation uh, with the Corinthian church. He's left them uh, to go to other areas to preach, and they've been misbehaving. They've not been growing in their learning. And as Dave preached about his last week in 1 Corinthians 3, they're still spiritually immature. And um, to add to that, the Corinthians, they had a bit of an attitude. Uh, they believed uh, because of uh, where they were, where Corinth was a, a place where there was a lot of learning, a lot of teaching, a lot of philosophy, that they were actually better than most Christians. They were kind of uh, a level above, uh, a Christian mark 2.0, if you will. And I, with my imagination, like to imagine them as almost like a, a bunch of Kanye Wests. Uh, kind of in the church. Now, many of you might not know who Kanye West is, uh, but I'm going to explain. Kanye West is an American rapper. He has a very high opinion of himself. Uh, he Last week he did Glastonbury, and uh, he said that he was the greatest rock star alive on the planet, uh, even though he raps. Uh, and also, he was once quoted to say, my greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. What a shame. <laughs> you know, world hunger, famine, world peace. No, can't see myself performing life. So he's also famous for interrupting people at award ceremony, telling people that the award should have gone to someone else, and basically uh, just being very highly opinionated, very egotistical. And there's a number of characters in this church in Corinth who are rude, they're full of themselves, they're not leading the life they should. And Paul is urging them to come back to basics, to lose that ego and learn once again what it really means to be a true follower of Christ. And Paul in this passage 
shows the Corinthian church how to be a true follower of Christ and four steps towards that, which I've put into four questions that Paul asks of the church. And we can also ask of ourselves, almost like a, a litmus test of, am I being a true follower of Christ? How do I answer these questions? And two of those questions are concerning our attitudes and actions towards God. And two of those questions are concerning our attitude and actions towards others. So why don't we read uh, 1 Corinthians 4 to find out more? This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over or against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Why don't we pray? Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths that we find in it, Lord. I pray tonight that we would, your spirit would fill us and we'd be able to find your truth in this passage for each one of us, Lord. Pray that your word would pierce us, Lord. And we'd learn to know more about you. Amen. So from this passage, Paul gives the Corinthian church four questions to measure themselves about how it is, how to be a true follower of Christ. So the first question Paul asks through this passage is he says, who am I serving? So verse one, uh, Paul starts the passage by saying this. He says, this is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. And uh, it's almost like Paul is saying right from the off, this is what you need to do to be a true follower. This is your first thing to do. And he sets that up for the rest of the chapter and the rest of the letter. He's showing us how important it is to follow God and serve him first, first and foremost, to serve God before anything else. The church, they were squabbling in Corinth about theological issues, about learning, but they were also neglecting their first love, 
And Paul is putting them straight and saying to love God and to serve him first. He's saying, if you do one thing, serve God. And that's what we need to do first and foremost. And there are many examples of, of faithful people serving the Lord in the Bible. One particular one I was looking at recently when um, just kind of uh, doing the sermon was uh, the, the story of Samuel. And Samuel is how faithful he is, where um, Samuel was uh, brought to the temple to serve God under the stewardship of Eli. And uh, he was there to serve God first and foremost. Eli's sons were there, and they were already working in the temple. And they were almost kind of taking advantage of that. Um, they were um, taking the choice pieces of meat out of the offering for themselves. So they were basically kind of making it all into an all-you-can-eat steak buffet and, and getting the nicest pieces of meat for themselves because they were serving themselves. They weren't serving God. But Samuel, faithful Samuel, was serving God. And then he heard the voice. He heard the voice being called of himself, Samuel. And he thought it was Eli. And three times he went to Eli. And Eli said, you didn't serve me. And then Eli realized that it was Samuel, that, God that was calling Samuel. And he said, when the Lord calls you, he said, say this. He said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And that's what Samuel did. He served the Lord with all his heart. And just struck when he had that conversation with God, the Lord said that none of your words will fall to the ground. None of your words will fall to the ground if you serve me first and foremost. Also in Romans 12, Paul writes, he says this, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, to serve God in that way. And serving God is the number one thing that we can, should do in our lives. And Paul is taking us back to that basic necessity to serve him. And you might be thinking the next thing I'm going to say is that there's this really cool new ministry that you should all get involved in and serve or that we should also just serve more in church or that we should fill our calendars just serving others. But that's not what I'm going to say. You might be pleased to hear that. You might be a bit disappointed. I don't know. But I feel that Paul puts this distinction in very, very carefully when he says that we are servants of Christ. He doesn't say that we're servants of people. He doesn't say that we're servants of ministries. He doesn't say that we're servants of church, but servants of Christ. And that distinction is crucial. Church, I don't think that Paul is saying that we should get involved with more stuff for the sake of it, or because we're told to, or because we're asked to. Paul is saying we should serve God, and out of that love for him and all the things that we receive from knowing God, that we should serve others, but serve him first and foremost. Jesus makes that distinction when he... Um, is asked what the greatest commandment is. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself. That comes first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. It's out of that that we do everything else. It's out of that overflow. And we don't need to become busier for the sake of it or to just to fill our calendars. And I can find I do that sometimes where I just take on stuff and then I realize a couple of weeks later, I'm like, actually, I don't have any time to do that. And I've just done that because it sounded really cool or it sounded like uh, I would be really good at it. But actually, I need to kind of cut that down and realize that I'm just making myself busy for the sake of it. I was reading this book by a pastor, Kevin DeYoung, who uh, summarizes it like this. He says this. He says, you and I have a problem. Most mornings, we drag ourselves out of bed, start the day's routine, and hope against hope that we can simply hold our ground. Maybe we can keep the house in only a mild state of disaster. Maybe we can break even on the to-do list. Maybe no one else will get sick. 
Maybe the inbox won't get any fuller. Maybe, just maybe, we can get enough done in the next 18 hours to beat back the beast of busyness and live to see another day. We wake up most days trying not to serve, just trying to survive. And I know that that is all too real in my life sometimes, where I wake up and I realize I am just trying to survive and not to serve God first and foremost. In society, we have that waking up, that dread of waking up on a Monday morning and realizing all the things that we have to do. Or sometimes maybe we come on a Sunday and we realize we're on a rota and we're like, oh no, what excuse can I give this time to not turn up? And that's okay. It's true sometimes that sometimes we don't feel like we want to serve. And that's because we think about serving people and not serving God. When we serve God, we get so much more in return. We receive his mercies, his grace. We remember that our identity is in him and not in what we do, but in who we are. So in order to be a true follower of Christ, the first thing we must do is that we serve God. So my question is for all of us here tonight, that in everything we do in our workplaces, in our family life, in our times with friends, in our church life, who are we serving? Are we serving God or ourselves? Are we serving because we've been asked by people or because we've been called by God? Are we serving to do good or to look good? And I think for some of us tonight, actually, we just need to, to learn uh, two simple letters, no, N-O, no, that we can actually say that that's okay. We can say no in church, that if we're asked to do something, that we can say no. If we don't feel that that's what God's calling us to do, if we don't feel that that's our way of serving God, but we're just filling up a rota, that we can say no. And if, if that speaks to you, then we would love to pray for you at the end if you feel that maybe you're just pleasing people and not actually serving God. So for some of us, I guess, serving God as our priority might mean we actually start serving in our church. But also it might mean that we step away from one area because we aren't doing it for God. We're maybe doing it for ourselves. So Paul's first question is, who are you serving? His second question is, what is your focus? So Paul has said that we should serve God before anything else and anyone else. And then in verse 3 through to 5, he talks about continuing that theme and persevering with God. He says in verse 3 that we shouldn't judge others and we shouldn't judge others on their race and what they're doing, but focus on him and focus on finishing well. In verse 5, Paul says that at the appointed time, we will receive our praise from God. And the message version of this verse says at the appointed time, only then will we receive the well done of God. So Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to persevere, to keep following and serving God and to focus on their own walk with God, not to look at anyone else, but focus on their own walk. The church in Corinth were getting caught up in these new ideas and what other people had got wrong, and were kind of scrutinizing that. But they weren't focusing on their own race. They weren't focusing on the well done that they would receive from God. So Paul's question is, what is your focus? Are we focusing on the things and people of this world, or on God and the things of his kingdom? And in verse 7, it continues on that theme with Paul asking questions that are maybe slightly sarcastic where he says, what makes you different than anything else? And then, what didn't you receive? Everything came from God. And why boast about it as if it didn't come from God? So again, he's bringing him back to those basics of just saying that you need to focus on God and focus on that well done because that's where it all came from. I think there comes a point in life 
maybe in most men, I, I speak for myself, I might be wrong with many people, but there comes in most, the life of most men where you become content in your life. And particularly, I have become content of the size of my belly. That's true. So before, I, I used to do a lot of rugby. I used to go to the gym all the time. Um, and I would be really happy about making myself look good. And, um, and a six-pack was the term I used to describe my stomach as, a, as the term I used to describe how many bottles of beer I had in my hand. Uh, and just generally, um, just, just feeling great about that. And um, then came the point where I, I realized that I didn't have to, to look like that. I guess I was maybe uh, working out all the time to, to impress people, to look good for people, and just basically to show off my awesome physicality. Um, but then... I met a very special lady, I met Jill, and uh, I realized that I didn't have to, uh, she loved me for who I am, I didn't have to have a, a buff six-packer at all. And also, I, I found out about um, the wonders of the human body, that when you're 18, you can eat whatever you want, and it doesn't show at all, but then when you become like in your mid-twenties, suddenly you realize that there's a direct correlation of what you ate last night is showing on a on your stomach the next day, and the phrase, a, light, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips, I can testify to that, that that is completely true now. Um, it takes forever to get off. So I guess before that, I was maybe looking for acceptance, I was looking for uh, that love that maybe I was looking for, that yes, I need to have the perfect body, and then I'll find uh, the right woman. But when I found the right woman, I maybe got a bit lazy and realized, oh yeah, yeah, that's great, I can be content with my life, I don't have to go to the gym all day, I'll actually hang out with Jill. Or maybe I, I told myself that actually Jill loves me for who I am. So therefore I don't, I don't need to, to work out. I don't need to, um, to strive for that anymore. And I feel like that can sometimes be like our walk with God. When we are trying to find God, when we've maybe been searching, we look everywhere. We uh, read our Bible constantly. We, we are praying to God. We're waiting for him to reveal himself. And then when he does... We receive that love and that acceptance for who we are, and it's amazing. But then sometimes we can easily get lazy in that and think, God loves me for who I am, so I don't need to pray today. Oh, I don't need to go to church today because God loves me for who I am. And I just feel in this passage that Paul is saying, yes, he does, but he doesn't expect you just to say the same. He expects you to change and to grow more and more to be like him and to keep striving for that goal, to keep striving for that well done. We should be focusing on that well done and what we will receive from God and not become lazy, but actually push on and persevere. In 1 Corinthians 9, which I'm sure we'll look at later in our series, uh, Paul says this, and it's the message version, which I love. He says, no sloppy living for me. I am staying in top condition. That's maybe what we need to do tonight, to think about how are we being lazy? Are we being apathetic about our Christian walk? And maybe turning back to those basics of not being sloppy, but actually staying in that top condition. Now, for many of you who know me, you'll know that I love sport. Uh, I love most kinds of sport. And um, normally I watch sport and I think I can, I can do that pretty well. If I, if I had the right training, if I was the right age, I could put my mind to it. So like watching the tennis yesterday and you're just like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm 27. James Ward's 28. Andy Murray's 28 give it a year, I could be playing Wimbledon, you know, or, uh, yeah, unlikely, or, you know, watching the Women's World Cup, it's like, if I train really hard, I could, I could be in the Women's World Cup, wait, there's something not right about that, uh, I could be in the Men's World Cup, yes, so one sport that just isn't the case where I could never have a hope at all would be uh, the sport of basketball, 
I like just it just doesn't work with my size and everything. I don't think I could ever do that. Uh, I couldn't even slam dunk if someone gave me a leg up. It just wouldn't happen. So um, I love basketball. And um, recently, uh, you might or might not know this, that last month the NBA Finals happened, which is basically like the Premier League. And uh, my team, which never happens, my team, Golden State Warriors, actually won the NBA Finals, which was awesome. And uh, Golden State have some great players. They've got Steph Curry. Um, Steph Curry is uh, famous for being, I suppose, the most three points in a season. Uh, he's able to do that three-point shot, and it's just ridiculous. Uh, Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson scored 37 points in a quarter. Most teams average in about 48 minutes, which is four quarters. They average about 100 points. So in 12 minutes, he scored 37 points by himself and 52 overall in that game, which is crazy. And they've got Draymond Green, who's like, he's one of the best defenders in the league. And um, at the end of the finals, they have this thing uh, where they award... Um, the MVP, which is like the most valuable player. And it was awarded uh, to Andre Iguodala of the Golden State Warriors. Now, I didn't mention him there, and there's a reason, because the amazing thing about this uh, award that Andre Iguodala won was that he didn't start any of the 82 regular season games. So what happens in uh, basketball is they have 82 games in the regular season to find out who goes to the playoffs, and then they have the playoffs. So in 82 of those regular seasons, night in, night out, Andre Iguodala was sitting on the bench watching his teammates play. They were doing all these amazing things, and he was just watching them. And so he would get on now and again, um, but he was still on the bench. And he could have decided that he wasn't getting on, that he wouldn't have a part to play, but instead he focused on that prize at the end, and there were some injuries, and he played the finals, and he had such an impact that he became the MVP. And he got that well done when it mattered most. He got his chance, and he kept going for that prize. So what is our focus on? Are you on the bench of life feeling like you've never got a chance? Are you maybe comparing yourself to others and thinking, oh, I could never do what they do? Or maybe even thinking that, oh, I could do a little bit better than that, but I'm still on the bench. Or maybe you're comparing yourself to your past self in the sense of, oh, last year I was really, really close to God, but now... I'm so far away, and we focus on the negatives instead of the positives of where we've grown. Paul says to focus on that eternal prize, to keep going, and to receive the well done of God. So who am I serving? What is my focus? Those two questions focus on our attitudes and our actions towards God. Now we'll look at the two questions that focus on our attitudes and actions towards others. So our third question tonight is, who am I, who are you guiding? So we saw in, in verse 1 that Paul has emphasized about serving God. The very next statement that he makes is that out of being that servant of Christ, we should be a guide to others of the mysteries of God. And the message version puts it this way, we are guides into God's most sublime secrets, not security guards posted to protect them. We're called to guide others to him not to push them away. And that's part of our servanthood. And sometimes that can maybe feel like a struggle um, of trying to guide people to God, to reveal um, God to them. Or sometimes we might feel, I don't, I've just been coming along really recently. I don't know much at all about um, these mysteries. But the truth is, however long we've known God, however long we've been coming along to church, we all have more experience of God and his mysteries than those in the outside world. Because many in Scotland have never been to church if it's not for school assemblies, weddings, and funerals. So 
So Paul is saying here that we have been entrusted to show others God, to welcome them in and say, come and see, come and see what is good and not to push them away. And it's almost like we, we are those local guides that have been entrusted of those mysteries and almost like we're the local guides of the mountain that is God. So I've been reading up on my history. I love a bit of history. Um, and I was reading up about Sir Edmund Hillary. Um, now, you may know Sir Edmund Hillary. He, on the 29th of May, 1953, uh, stood atop of the highest point in the world, Mount Everest. And um, he was part of the 9th British expedition to Mount Everest and is widely, widely, not wildly, widely regarded as one of the most influential people of the 20th century because of his feet. He was an incredibly skilled mountaineer. He was an explorer. He was a healthy young man. He was fit. But one of the main reasons that Hillary got to the top of Everest was not because of all that skill, all that training, all that knowledge, but it was because of his guide, Tenzin Norgay. Now, Sherpa Tenzin, he was a native of Nepal and growing up in one of the valleys just below Everest. And as a boy, he had lived in the shadow of that mountain all his life. In the 1930s and 40s, uh, he got a chance to climb Everest and he led six expeditions up the mountain trying to get to the summit. By 1953, this was Sherpa Tenzin's seventh expedition to Everest. And actually, early on in the expedition, he saved Hillary's life. Uh, Hillary lost his footing. He fell into a crevasse on the mountainside. And he would have fallen to his death if it wasn't for Tenzin, who saved him due to his prompt action in securing Hillary's rope with an ice axe. So Hillary would have never reached the top of Everest on his own. And that mountain still had many mysteries to him. He needed that local guide to serve him and to show him the way. And there are many people in life who are skilled, who are knowledgeable, who are driven, but they're still lost because they don't know the mysteries of the mountains. And we need to be the local guides who are able to reveal God's mysteries to them. I imagine when climbing Everest, there were probably some very scary moments. There were probably some very uncertain moments. And there were probably times when they just thought, you know what, let's just give up. It's a really big mountain. I can't go any further. And, but when they reached that summit, and I can only imagine as I've not been up, uh, they were able to see that serene beauty of creation. And they were able to see uh, up, up top the highest mountain that no one else had ever seen. Paul's question is, who am I guiding? There are so many people in life who are lost on that mountain. They're looking for that local guide to help them reach the summit. Our role as guides isn't easy. It can be tough work, but it's what we've been called to do. When people see God for the first time, it's worth it. So which of our friends, our colleagues, our family are we guiding? It's our responsibility. We must guide people to the mysteries of God. It's on us, not anyone else, but on us. So Paul's question, his third question is, who am I guiding? And his final question is what example am I setting? In verses 9 through 13, Paul contrasts how he is living his Christian life compared to those in Corinth. Paul has said that he's a fool for Christ. He said he's weak, he's dishonored, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's homeless. And then Paul finishes uh, this string of a uh, tirade almost of examples when he says that we have become the scum of the earth 
the garbage of the world. And that's a really cheery, warm, fuzzy feeling that you get when you hear those words, isn't it? And, uh, but the Corinthians, in contrast, they're known for being wise. They're known uh, for being strong. They're known for being honored. And that's the example that they're setting to those who don't know Christ, of this is what you need to be. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to be the best of the best of the best. You need to be high and mighty. You need to be very serious. And uh, that's what the example they're showing. And sometimes the worldview of Christians can be something like this, that they can be uptight, they can be rule-keeping, they can be jumper-wearing, and they can be 90-year-olds that aren't much fun. And Paul, again, is saying like that, that that isn't the case. That's not what it should be. That's not what our example that we should be setting. And Paul is urging the Corinthian church, and for us today, to not take ourselves too seriously and to be fools for Christ. And I particularly want to focus on that uh, little phrase, fools for Christ, because it sounds a bit weird and it sounds like it shouldn't be there. Um, but I just want to talk about that for a little bit. And uh, I love movies, and I recently watched a movie which uh, inspired me about this. It's called uh, Footloose. I don't know if anyone's, anyone's seen Footloose. Yeah, much more love for Footloose here than it was in the morning. No, no Footloose. Um, so Footloose is the story of a guy called Ren McCormack, set in 1984. He is a Chicago man, and he goes to a small town of Beaumont to live with his relatives. And Beaumont is a very religious town. They've banned dancing, they've banned rock music. And uh, Ren's like, oh, I love to dance. What's, all, what's going on here? I want to I wanna dance. And they're like, no, you can't dance. And um, then he goes to the city council, he, um, or the town council even, and he asks to reverse this decision about not dancing. And they're kind of scared about dancing, about rock music, because of it potentially involves drinking, it involves drugs, it involves sex. Uh, and they're like, no, we don't want to be any part of that. We want to be uh, sheltered away from that. And he says, no, dancing is all about that joy, all about that excitement. And, um, and they're like, mm, no. And then um, just to, maybe this is a bit of a spoiler, but it is like a 30-year-old film, so it's not too much of a spoiler. Uh, eventually, they say, okay, go on. You can have a school prom. And the, the high school have a prom, and they dance for the first time in the years. And then generations older dance as well. And um, you might be asking why I'm telling you that. And uh, one reason is because I got the uh, plot of Footless into a sermon, which is awesome. Uh, but the other reason, I guess, is just that that's an example of sometimes um, how we can be seen as Christians, that we're... Um, maybe seen as, oh no, we can't do that. That's, that's wrong. We're in our, we, we know better. We can't be involved in those kind of things. And Paul wants us um, to be fools for Christ. He wants us to, to live a little and to have some fun while we're doing it. The, the Christian life is supposed to be a fun thing and not to be boring, not to be uh, plain and simple, but not stuck up on our high horses and not engaging with society, but to be that bright light in the world. People can see us for much better than how they are living and see the difference that we make. If we're just in a Christian bubble, then they won't see that. But if we, we entertain and we, um, I suppose, engage with people in society, then we, they realize that actually, wow, being a Christian is much more than what I thought it was. And Jesus says that we're called uh, to be in the world, but not of the world. So that means that we actually have to be in the world. It doesn't mean that we have to be of it, but we have to be in it. And he wants us to be those fools for Christ. So in the, the words I feel that are from God in this sense, but from Kenny Loggins, who sang Footloose. Church, we've got to cut loose. Footloose. We've got to kick off our Sunday shoes. We've got to lose our blues, and we've got to cut Footloose. That's why I feel we're saying today, of just shaking ourselves up a bit and not feeling like we're just coming along, not feeling like being a Christian is the most boring thing in the world, but actually to have fun. So what example are we setting? Are we fools for Christ? And I'm not saying we should be fools in the sense of clumsy or live recklessly, but fools 
in the sense that we take risks in God, that we trust him, and things that maybe seem foolish to the world, but don't seem foolish to God, but to take that risk for him. And the truth is that when Christ was on the cross, he was insulted, he was beaten, he was mocked, and he was humiliated by the world. And the world called him a fool. But three days later, he rose again and defeated that death, that humiliation, that mocking, and came in his glory, his majesty, and his perfection. And if the fool's life is if what Christ lived, then I'm happy to live that fool's life too. And we should be as well. And similarly, the examples that we, shouldn't, uh, we should be setting is that it's not okay to have everything in our life sorted, not have every I dotted, every T crossed, but actually that being a Christian is a fun and exciting thing and what others are missing. I'll finish with this. The last time I was, I was at a wedding a few years ago and um, we, were, we were at this wedding. There was a number of people from church and uh, we were having the time of our lives and uh, we had decided that we were going to keep dancing and we were going to keep going. The band had finished. We were like, no, the party hasn't stopped. We're going to keep going. And I had, sim- single, single, yeah. I had signaled this by putting my tie around my head, which still meant that it was still party time. Um, so I was dancing with my tie around my head. There were other people who were dancing with their tie around their head. Some people were on the floor. Some people were like just cutting some crazy shapes. And then uh, we kept on going until like the kind of bitter end until we got basically kicked out. And um, then someone had obviously taken a photo of this and they'd posted it on Facebook. And then someone had written the comment something like, oh, this is a really bad uh, example of, of City Church. And actually thinking about it now, it's an absolutely amazing example of what the church should be like. Because... There were people there, they were just having such fun. They were having a great time. They were not caring what other people thought, but they were living that kind of drumbeat, that dance to life. And people seeing that, they must have thought, wow, I would never have expected Christians to be like that. And that's how we need to live our life, just a little bit looser, and a little bit more like life is actually exciting. So in verse 9 of, uh, of, this, of this passage, Paul says that we are on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. And life as a Christian is we are on display for all to see. And we are judged more. We are scrutinized more for our actions. And sometimes that can be really positive, but also that can be really tricky when we're scrutinized for everything we do. And Jesus says that in John 10.10, he says this, I have come to give you life and life to the full. And I guess what I feel um, the Lord is saying to us tonight about this is that if we live a fool's life for him, if we take those risks in God, that's when we will receive that life in all its fullness. That's when we'll experience the life in all its fullness. So to be a true follower of Christ, I feel we need to ask ourselves these questions. Who am I serving? What is our focus on? Who are we guiding? And what examples are we setting? Why don't we stand and let's pray.